Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Carroll, and those of you who've been following my stuff over the years know that I'm very interested in quantum mechanics, the foundations of quantum mechanics, what it all means. And in particular, I'm a proponent and advocate for the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. I think it's probably the right one, but you know, there are smart people who disagree. So therefore, on today's episode, we're going to feature a smart person who disagrees. David Albert is a philosopher of physics at Columbia University who got his PhD in physics from Rockefeller, and he is one of the leading figures in the world on the foundations of quantum mechanics. He is not a fan of many worlds of what we call Everettian quantum theory, and so we're going to dig into what makes him such a skeptic. Uh, sadly, we didn't get quite enough time to talk about what issues, uh, what approaches to quantum mechanics he is in favor of, but that's okay. Maybe we'll come back for a new podcast some other time. We're going to explain what quantum mechanics is, what the measurement problem is, what the many worlds theory says, and the particular puzzles he sees that he does not feel optimistic that many worlds is going to be able to answer. Well, this is a very useful podcast to listen to if you're kind of interested in this area but aren't an expert both because we sort of clear up what are the silly objections to many worlds and focus on what we agree are the important puzzles, the important challenges to many worlds. David knows perfectly well that many worlds is a plausible theory, but he just thinks that the obstacles to getting it right are not going to be solved, whereas I think that they are going to be. The other reason is because this is a masterclass in careful philosophical reasoning. Uh, David is extremely good about not using any jargon, either physics jargon or philosophy jargon, but also very good at very carefully, precisely, rigorously setting out what the issues are, looking at the different alternatives. So I personally do not reach the same conclusions from that analysis that David does, but I always have time to listen to him. In fact, I, I actually got a couple of new ideas just while we had this conversation. So I hope that you get some new ideas too. Uh, let me just mention the occasional podcast notes. You are very welcome and encouraged to support Mindscape uh, by donating on Patreon or PayPal. You can check out the website, preposterousuniverse.com slash podcast to figure out how to do that. And of course, we'd love to get good reviews on iTunes or elsewhere. And with that, let's go. We are all driven by searching for something better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, but match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of Mindscape will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Mindscape. Just go to Indeed.com slash Mindscape right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Mindscape. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
David Albert, welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. Glad to be here. And we'll warn the listeners ahead of time that uh, we're here in your apartment in Manhattan, and we have a guest uh, speaker in the form of Leroy, the little dog. So if anyone hears barks, don't fear for our safety. That's all part of the experience. So uh, you're a... I'll start with an amusing anecdote, which I read in Adam Becker's book mm-hmm. about you. Mm-hmm. And I'm, by the way, I'm writing my own book on quantum mechanics, as my listeners know. So and you've I'm, told me. And yeah. I'm going to rewrite that anecdote. It's going to be in there good. <laughs> and it's about your experience as a graduate student at Rockefeller. Right. And you made the mistake of reading a book by David Hume, right. if I understand correctly. Right. And right. that got you interested in foundations. And what happened? That's um, um, Well, there was a uh, uh, that wasn't received warmly uh, at Rockefeller. This was in a physics department. This was in in the physics department at Rockefeller. There were, within fairly short order, proceedings instituted to to expel me from the PhD program. Um, This was back in the late, very late 1970s, early 1980s. So this was in in dark old days. But... uh, um, but worrying about issues like that was profoundly unpopular. I was, um, um, I, you know, I got to stay in the program on the condition that uh, I would do a, uh, a, I would work on a thesis topic assigned to me by the department uh, instead of one that I chose. And the one that was assigned was clearly one that was thought to be good for my character. Um, <laughs> well, it uh, turned out okay. Your character's so, in good shape so now. It was so a, it was an extremely calculation-heavy... Um, um, it was something on uh, about uh, Borel resummation and fight of the four field theories, um, which people were playing around with uh, in those days. Um, it was an extremely computation-heavy thesis topic. I sort of, I had, I had been in contact at that time already with Yakir Haronov, who I had written to while I was a graduate student, um, telling him some uh, questions that I was struggling with, didn't know what to do with, um, asked for his advice. He was wonderful. And I did go to him when I, I, I was given a pretty stark choice at a meeting in the dean's office, that either I was going to do a thesis topic assigned uh, to me by the department, or I was going to leave the PhD program. And uh, I said, okay, you know, could I have a couple of days to think this over? And uh, went to, uh, got in touch with Aharonov, who was very nice and and uh, uh, had been very close at the time, for example, to, to Leonard Susskind, and said, you know, I could talk to Lenny, maybe we could, uh, we could transfer you to... Uh, to, I guess he was at Stanford at that time. Um, we could, you know, you could transfer to Stanford or something like that. But he said, you know what? I, I, it'll take you two years to complete this thesis. Maybe the best thing to do is put your head down, um, go through it. Um, I can promise you that I'll I'll offer you a postdoc uh, with me in Tel Aviv when you get out. And uh, and you know, you go to another place. There's a lot of respect to which you'll be right. starting all over. Don't do that. So I, I think that was good advice, and I did it. Um, there's a nice little anecdote. Um, I don't know if it's in the other book. Um, uh, I, you know, I was, of course, the whole time 
fuming uh, <laughs> internally. And when I finally submitted the thesis, actually, there are two nice stories about this. If you don't have time Please, for these, go ahead. Yeah. Um, we like stories. Those are good. So uh, one story is that uh, uh, that is the epigram to the thesis when I finally submitted it. Um, um, there's a, a quotation, perhaps apocryphal, from Galileo um, uh, to the effect that when he was finally released by the Vatican Inquisition, um, he stamped his foot on the ground after having recanted his, uh, his doctrine that the earth moves. He, he walked out of the Vatican and stamped his foot on the ground and said, I think this is the correct Italian, said, e pur si muove. Um, it moves, it doesn't matter what I said, it moves anyway. Um, so I chose that quote in Italian as the epigram for my thesis. Uh, it took the department a couple of days to figure out what it meant, and, and there was widespread offense, and, and, and people were upset. The other nicer story is, um, uh, so I submitted my thesis, and as you know, when you do a defense, um, um, uh, people, j just to sort of show that they've read the thesis, people never pass you completely outright. They say uh, minor modifications, you know, grammatical this or that, you know, you know, given minor modifications, we pass and you should submit the thesis to the dean's office within a week or so. So I walked out of that defense in, the, in a mood of the form, I'm not spending one more second of my life you know, looking at this thesis or humoring these people. So I didn't. So I never handed in the final copy of my thesis to the dean's office. This was in 1981. And for years afterwards, there was a vague fear in the back of my <laughs> mind that somehow, you know, I hadn't fulfilled the full technical obligations for the PhD. And somehow, someday, God was going to use this to punish me. Okay. Um, so sure enough, Ten years later, in 1990, I get a call from the librarian at Rockefeller University who says, you know, at the end of each decade, we compile all the theses completed over the course of that decade into a bound volume and so on and so forth. And we find that we don't have a final copy of your thesis. And I for, th this was the call I had been having nightmares about <laughs> for 10 years, and I froze in complete panic, collected myself a little bit, and did something uncharacteristically bald and, uh, you know, bold and sort of ballsy for me. So I collect myself, and I say, what? You lost my... I mean, what is your job anyway besides keeping track of things like, this is outrageous, this is unbelievable, I think this is appalling. No, I'm not going to give you my final copy of my thesis. You had better turn that library upside down and find that thesis, and I want to report within a week back from you about what your progress has been in finding the thesis. The woman says, I'm sorry, you're absolutely right, gets off the phone, calls me back a week later and tells me they found it. <laughs> and, and needless to say, she was referring to an item which I happen to know did not exist. And um, yet. 
and yet. So, <laughs> so that's a nice story about about my my getting my PhD. And it's not as if you know you were just uh, rambling on at the time about what could quantum mechanics mean. Aharonov and you, you know, wrote some very nice papers at that time. Thank you. you. Know, that were useful for physicists yeah, as well. Yeah. Right? No, I I thought uh, it was a you know I had a wonderful collaboration after that for several years in in Israel with Aronov and just learned an enormous uh, amount from him. I, I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody, and this is different from an intuition for how to solve foundational problems. I don't know that I've ever met anyone in my life who had as quick and as sure an intuitive grasp, which is almost a contradiction in terms, about how quantum mechanical systems are going to behave. Right. And it was just amazing. And, you know, you'd be sitting in his office. He liked always to be talking to people. That's how he worked. So we were always, you know, a couple of his graduate students and postdocs were just sitting around in his office in Tel Aviv all day and discussing... Once again, he wasn't so focused on what I would now call philosophical problems, but he just had this intuition about how you could make quantum mechanical systems do astonishing things. There were stories about him when he used to be at Yeshiva University in New York, where he would walk into people's offices in the philosophy department just in order to have something to do that evening and say, describe a physical effect which is obviously impossible, you know? So people would say, I don't know, you know, a man turns into an elephant, right. you know, and Aronov would go home and figure out a quantum mechanical <laughs> way that this could happen. And this is this was the kind of exercise that lay behind many things that he discovered. And again and again, he we would be talking about some concrete physical example, and he would say it's going to do this. Yeah. And and you would say, how how do you know? Can you explain? He says, I, go home and do the calculation. It's obviously going to do this. I don't know how to explain it. And you would go home and do the calculation. He'd be right. It was astounding. It was one of these frustrating things also, because you figure if you're looking right at him while he's doing it, you're going to see how he does it. <laughs> and, Did that and never this work? didn't turn out to no, be true. No, not really turning right. out to be true. I, you know, I have Richard Feynman's old desk at Caltech, and I try to hide you know, blank pieces of paper in the right. desk, hoping that they will appear the next day covered with equations. It hasn't worked either. So the problem that got you on this path then, uh, presumably before this moment, you were right. a more or less conventional theoretical physics graduate student. I think that's right. It's fair to say that my interests were always in a foundational direction. Um, um, I, I mean, I think I remember, ah, well, maybe it's too long a story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. To a first approximation, yes. Yes, okay. Yeah. But then you discovered that this, or you started thinking that the measurement problem of quantum mechanics really deserved more scrutiny. Or, uh, I mean, I somehow, um, I mean, I'm sure many people went through this. This is nothing extraordinary about me. I hadn't heard of the right. measurement problem. 
And, and people often ask me to reconstruct, how exactly did you get from reading Hume to the measurement problem? <laughs> and, and frankly, I'm not able sure. to reconstruct that. And it probably involves an embarrassingly bad misreading of Hume. Of Hume yeah. um, but, but he uh, certainly was not worried about right, the measurement right. problem um, in quantum um, mechanics. But somehow, uh, you know, in the course of a long night of great intellectual excitement that began by reading Hume, by the time the sun was coming up, I had understood that there was a, that there was a problem. So how would, for our listeners who are not physicists or philosophers, how would you say briefly what the measurement problem is? Something like this. Um, 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 if I ask uh, how I know there's a glass on the table in front of us, um, um, People are going to give an account something like this. Well, there's light in the room, and some of the light uh, reflects off the surface of the glass, and some of that reflected light enters my eye and impacts my retina and causes certain kinds of electrical excitations there, which in turn cause electrical excitations in my optic nerve and deeper into my brain and yada, yada, yada. And after however many steps, such steps my brain has entered the state associated with the perception of a glass on the table. And I think it's fair to say um, that although we don't know yet or, or might not have known at the time what the detailed physical laws were governing all those steps, the story had better end up going something like that because we can't imagine how else it might go. And... And it's important that at the end of the day, we can convince ourselves that each of those steps occurs in full accord with whatever the fundamental physical laws are. And um, it's pretty easy to show, once you start thinking about it from the right angle, that this couldn't be the correct account of how we, uh, of how we know about the outcomes of certain experiments on quantum mechanical systems. If we were to play the game of uh, imagining that the whole world is governed by quantum mechanical laws at a fundamental level, and, um, um, then it turns out to be pretty easy to show. And listeners might find it surprising that this is easy to show because thoughts may occur like, my God, but a measuring device or a brain is something that, that's a collection of trillions of, uh, of elementary particles. You can't possibly have solved the equations of motion of all those. No, it turns out that we don't need to. We're aware of a certain mathematical property of those equations called linearity, which makes it easy for us to say, given that I have a device here which would end up um, which would end up registering a blip over there if there was a blip over there and which would end up registering a blip over there if there was a blip over there, then we, we, we have a way of calculating pretty straightforwardly what it would do in other circumstances. So very briefly, um, in quantum mechanics, or at least on the standard way of thinking about quantum mechanics, um, material particles like electrons, for example, can be in familiar situations, say, where they're located at point A and other familiar situations where they're located at point B, but they can also be in other situations where there are all, in, in which there are all kinds of compelling um, 
experimental reasons to believe that um, uh, that the appropriate way of describing them would be nothing like that, that you're in a situation in which it would, it, it, in which asking about the spatial location of the electron would be analogous to asking uh, about the marital status of the number five or about the length in meters of Catholicism um, um, or something like that, something that philosophers sometimes refer to as a category mistake. Um, that, that the electron would be in a situation where it just didn't make sense even to raise questions about where it was located. Not that it's located in a, some position or other, but we don't know which one. But like I say, that's not what you would say about the marital status of the number five, right. that I don't know what it is. It's not our ignorance. Um, uh, it's, it, it, there is no fact about the, about the marital right. status of the number five. What if in 2024 you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what's happening. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Babbel is the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. What I like about Babbel is its practicality. It's about talking to real people, ordering food, asking directions. You will put it to use. And here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Mindscape. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash Mindscape. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Mindscape. Rules and restrictions may apply. Good. And it turns out that you can show that... What the quantum mechanical equations of motion entail, if they applied to everything, not merely the electron whose position you're measuring, but the measuring device and your brain when you look at the measuring device and so on, suggests that if you were to interact with this electron with a device designed to measure its position, the way things would end up would be in a situation where there fails to be a fact of the matter about the direction in which the pointer is pointing. There fails to be a fact of the matter about um, whether you're in a brain state that, uh, that sees the pointer pointing this way or that sees the pointer pointing that way. And the idea is that these results, um, these implications of the equations of motion seem to be as directly at odds as anything could imaginably be with our empirical experience of the world. Um, and just to connect with, because I think some people probably have a little bit of exposure to these ideas, uh, you're making the point that there's no such thing as the location of the electron in right. these states. What we often say is that the electron is in a superposition of Correct. different locations. Exactly and right. So we can't help but were we to naively follow the rules of quantum mechanics, end up in a superposition of brain states. That's right. That, 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 what, what I sometimes say to students is that what the linearity of the quantum mechanical equations of motion entail is that this condition of being superposed in this way turns out to be fantastically infectious. Right. You touch it, and, and you've got it, too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs>
And yet we never feel like we're in a superposition in some sense. And so that's the measurement problem. So that's one way of saying the measurement problem, I guess. Right. Right. Or a stronger way of saying it, although, of course, I know you're anticipating things to come in, in putting it the way you did. But the initial reaction was more like it's not just that we don't feel that. It's obvious that that's right. not the state we're happen. in. Okay, yeah. it's obvious that it doesn't happen. We are assured that that doesn't happen as we are of anything. Right. What happens in the laboratory is that we go and look at these pointers, and we end up with a perfectly determinate belief about where the pointer is pointing. In situations like that, which belief we end up with is usually a matter of chance. It's either here or there. The trouble is that. What the quantum mechanical equations of motion predict is, first of all, that there's no chance at all that the evolution of the world is completely deterministic. And second of all, that the state that you deterministically end up in is one in which there emphatically fails to be a fact of the matter about which way the pointer is pointing or about which way you think the pointer is pointing. And as I said, the usual reaction to this is not, oh, that's funny, that's not the way we usually feel. It was stronger than that. This is obviously false. Yeah. But in fact, it was so obviously false that the idea of simply taking seriously the quantum mechanical equations, the Schrodinger equation, never occurred to the inventors of quantum mechanics, right? right? So the debates um, between Einstein and Bohr and others uh, back in the 1920s and 30s and so on led to this additional set of rules, which we now call the Copenhagen interpretation. Right. What are your thoughts on the Copenhagen um, um, It's a, it's a, well... We should say what it is. Wave functions collapse, etc. Right? That's, I mean, so, but the first thing to say about it, and, and the book by, one of the many virtues of the book by Adam Becker that you mentioned earlier, is that he points out that as a historical matter, you know, the, the, the words Copenhagen interpretation don't really refer to any single right. internally coherent set of claims. Different people claim to be enunciating the Copenhagen interpretation when they were actually saying quite different things. But, um, um, yeah, the, the thing you referred to, I think it's fair to say, is the, is the thing that was standing there once all the dust settled after many years. And it's, 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 a, it's a claim like this that, gee, if you really bite the bullet here, what you've got to say is that apparently there are two fundamental laws of the evolution of the physical state of the world. Um, one of which, the one that sort of Um, has sovereignty over the world in those situations uh, when a measurement is not going on are these linear equations of motion. And the other, um, which is in force when measurements are going on, um, is something called the collapse postulate, which, uh, which selects out one or the other of these possibilities for you, makes it the case that when you measure the position of an electron, which is in a superposition of being at X and Y, the, the measurement sort of has two steps. The idea of it's being a passive thing vanishes forever from physics. Step one, although these aren't things that occur at two different times, but they're two conceptual steps. Step one is it changes the situation of the electron from one in which it, it, you know, there is no fact about where it is to one in which there is a fact about where it is, and then reports to you what that fact is. Um, um, the minute this was proposed, 
it was obviously wildly inadequate, or at least fell wildly short of our previous aspirations for physics. It involved, at the fundamental level, an English word measurement, okay? Um, things behave differently when a measurement is going on and when a measurement is not going on. And it was clear that this English word or the German word in von Neumann's uh, uh, book where this was first clearly laid out didn't have anything approaching the requisite precision um, uh, to play that kind of a role in a fundamental physical account of the world. So the minute this was proposed, and I don't know what it was exactly in von Neumann's mind, but the minute it was proposed, it was obviously some kind of bad joke, okay? Um, or it was something that demanded, it, it was a provisional placeholder kind of thing that demanded much, much more elaboration. What's astonishing is that for... I think it's fair to say, so von Neumann's book was written, I think, at the very beginning of the 30s. 30s, yeah, 35. Um, for the next half century, the, 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 the way that thought about this subject proceeded was by people going in what they should have realized from the beginning were ridiculous circles. So people would propose, people, a project grew up of locating exactly being able to delineate exactly the location of the boundary between that set of circumstances where one of these laws applied and that set where other of the laws applied. So words like measurement were replaced by other words like macroscopic or thermodynamically irreversible or an indelible versus an in unindelible recording or subject and object or something like that. And these were all... Everybody should have realized, you know, within two seconds that there was no improvement going on here at all, that all of these words were equally vague. But uh, even these words were invoked by, at best, a minority of working physicists. Mm -hmm. Most working physicists, just didn't care even today, right, right. are very happy to just right, right. stick and, but, with that. And, but thing. it also, I, I think there may have been a symbiosis there. It gave the business of speculating about this a well-deserved bad reputation. I mean, perhaps the most famous of these speculations was one due to Wigner, um, who was, a, of course, very prominent and well-known physicist of the first half of the 20th century, person widely credited with introducing group theory into physics and thinking about symmetries in a certain way into physics and so on, um, Nobel Prize winner, uh, so on and so forth, um, thought that the way to draw the line between these two domains of, uh, 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 of situations in the world was uh, depended on whether or not they involved conscious systems. Um, indeed, the, there, there's an essay that's, that you know, listeners might be uh, interested to look at, a famous essay of Wigner's called On the Mind-Body Problem, where... Uh, uh, he's thrilled about this idea for the following reason. It's been thought for a long time that the picture of the world we get from physics is hostile to certain ideas we have about ourselves as agents and as thinkers. There's no room in this picture for mind. There's no room in this picture for agency or freedom, um, uh, so on and so forth. Wigner thought... Uh, Wigner had this idea that it was precisely conscious agency that caused 
departures from the standard quantum mechanical equations of motion that caused the collapse of the wave function. Um, indeed, he thought there was in this a new definition of the difference between animate and inanimate physical objects. What you mean by an inanimate physical object is precisely one that evolves according to the standard quantum mechanical equations of motion, and animate ones are ones that don't, that can give rise to collapses of the wave function. And Wigner thought this was great because physics had for so long seemed hostile to the idea of a non-physical mind right. somewhere in the world. It turns out, so he thought, not only is it not hostile, it requires <laughs> such a thing in order to do its ordinary physical job. Um, good. Obviously, this distinction between animate and inanimate is just as vague as anything else. I remember, I, I, you know, I swear on anything you want me to swear on, that as a graduate student, I witnessed Wigner at a conference in response to a question speculating to the effect that, that uh, he thought dogs could likely collapse wave functions, but mice probably not. And you just <laughs> say, you sit there and you say, this is not good, okay? Right. This is right. not the way to do physics. Um, um, so it remained in that kind of terrible state for about 40 years in the meantime. Sorry, to be super duper fair, since in a few minutes I'm going to be advocating that every time you do a quantum measurement, the world splits into mm -hmm. multiple copies. Mm -hmm. It's not the ridiculousness of the claim that worries us Correct. so much as the vagueness Correct. of the Absolutely claim. Absolutely right. Yes, I think that's, uh, I think that's a good point. Um, but the, the business of having debates between, uh, you know, about dogs versus mice emphasizes just that problem right, right. yeah but, gee who's gonna why in the world how, how are you gonna that? win that argument <laughs> right you know right right i agree with you okay very good um um basically for about 50 years after von neumann um um that's where things stood during that period there were at least two what would later be recognized as very important developments one due to Everett, which you were just referring to, and another due to David Bohm, um, which were serious attempts to, to make sense of this uh, problem. But um, they were completely ignored right. at the time. Um, then finally, also in the early 80s, there was a third suggestion due to Girardi, Romini, and Weber, um, which was along the lines of a collapse theory. And at that point, it's fair to say there began to be a critical mass of people uh, talking about this and so on. Somebody else very much worth mentioning who is, belongs mostly to the earlier period is John Bell, mm -hmm. who did uh, take note of Bohm's work, who did take note of Everett's work, and I think who is widely thought of nowadays uh, as the person who, in contrast to all the other people we were talking about before, Wigner and the macroscopic people and the thermodynamic irreversibility people, Bell is widely regarded as the person who showed how to think through these questions correctly, who established a sort of criterion as to what kind of thing could even be counted as a potential answer to this problem and right. what couldn't and how you would begin to evaluate them um, uh, relative to one another. He really 
set the field in a kind of order that I think the, the useful and productive parts of it have been following ever since. Right. So we have the measurement problem. There's this weird thing that if you take the quantum mechanical equations, by which, you know, Schrodinger's equation is, is the most obvious version, but there's sort of different ways of writing it. If you take those seriously, we seem to run into a conflict with experience, with what, what we see about the world, right. uh, that we that it says that we should ourselves evolve into superpositions. Right. So um, you've mentioned these three different ways of tackling that problem. We don't have to be historical. We can be logical. Do you Good. have a favorite way of uh, introducing the Plata, the platter um, of options? Um, no, oh, of introducing the platter? Yeah. Um, Bell nicely said in a paper that uh, what the measurement problem shows is that either the Schrodinger equation isn't everything or it isn't right. right. Okay. Um, now, your favorite interpretation is going to deny both of those, but this is a good way to begin to understand what's going on. The thought was either... We need to, so, so there was this um, way, uh, this standard way of representing states of quantum mechanical systems that came along with quantum mechanics, quantum mechanical wave function or the quantum mechanical state vector. Um, that vector, you know, unambiguously ends up a certain way at the end of a measurement process, and it ends up in a way that doesn't contain information about what the result of the measurement was, and indeed on the standard way of interpreting it, denied that there was a fact about what the outcome of the measurement was. Uh, Bell said, look, there are two ways I can imagine dealing with this. One, change the equations, okay? Change the equations such that they do uh, evolve this weight, wave function or state vector um, in such a way that it ends up associated with one or another particular outcome of this experiment. Indeed, among the things you would have to change about the laws of evolution is that they presumably no longer be deterministic. They're now going to be stochastic because our experience is that sometimes you get this result and sometimes you get that. Um, that's one strategy. That's referred to as, a, as, as writing down a theory of the collapse of the wave function. Um, this is the strategy that's most continuous with the kind of thing that von Neumann was originally imagining. There's another... And just parenthetically, even though it doesn't get that much attention among philosophers of foundations, Roger Penrose's efforts are in this direction. That's right? correct. An explicit theory of the collapse of the wave function. That's correct. Um, we might talk later. I, I think... Uh, um, um, I think there are reasons why GRW's strategy is probably better than Penrose's right. strategy. Um, so GRW being three guys who have a different theory of the collapse correct, of the wave function. Correct, correct. Um, but that's right. Penrose's is another theory in this family um, um, or within this tradition. This episode of Mindscape is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, a lot of us spend our lives wishing that we had more time to do things. But the question is, time for exactly what? Even if your time was unlimited, how would you use it? 
The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. And therapy can help you find out what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you've given any thought to starting therapy, think about giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and BetterHelp is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Mindscape today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Mindscape. So that's tradition number one. Tradition number two is to take the other horn of the dilemma that Bell spells out. Um, um, it might be that the standard laws of the evolution of this quantum mechanical wave function that we have are perfectly true, but the wave function itself might not amount to a complete description of the physical situation. Um, you have to add other variables. These variables, for unfortunate historical reasons, were called hidden variables. But if you study something like Bohm's theory, they're the opposite of hidden. They're the thing they're you see. see. Yes. Right. Right. Um, and Einstein had sympathies along this direction. Yes, he did. That's right. That's right. That's what he seemed to want. Um, and that's what the, uh, the uh, EPR paradox appears to be an argument for. Um, um, and most people would say that the best example we currently have of a theory along those lines, although also there, there are several, um, is, is one due to David Bohm in the, in the 1950s. Um, um, there's a, you know, sad, I mean, I mean, the story, as you hinted at, and I don't want to get too sidetracked here, um, of the way this work was ignored and the mechanisms that allowed the theoretical physics community to ignore them are, are sad and in many ways appalling. Um, in the case of Bohm in particular, um, uh, one of the things that allowed people to ignore his work was the work of the McCarthy Committee uh, in the 50s. He was harassed out of the country soon after uh, uh, publishing his theory that was something that made it much easier to ignore his work. Um, there's a, I've often thought, somebody like Becker begins to make a stab at this, I've often thought that if you were to trace the sort of, um, the history of people's reactions to foundational problems of quantum mechanics, you know, you'd get a whole underground history of the 20th century um, and all kinds of forces come into it. McCarthyism comes into it. Um, in, in Russia, you know, dialectical materialism comes into it. The rise of modernism in the beginning of the 20th, 20th century comes into it. It would be a very interesting story to trace out in detail. But anyway, that's a side issue. Then there is this other more radical, more heroic, more exciting tradition of Everett, which wants to... Uh, the third horn of the dilemma. The, the third <laughs> horn of the dilemma, which Bell doesn't anticipate in, this, uh, uh, in the description I just referred to, where you're going to insist, no, uh, uh, the quantum mechanical wave function is a complete description of nature, and moreover, the... Uh, the uh, uh, the standard 
linear quantum mechanical equations of motion without the collapse are always obeyed. Uh, and um, how do I want to put this? The uh, Bell, excuse me, not Bell, Everett suggested in his paper, and the paper is at a couple of points crucially unclear. This was apparently not Everett's fault, but the fault of his, uh, his very unresponsible, in this case, thesis advisor, John Wheeler, who muddied and dulled Everett's point all over the place because he was afraid of Bohr's uh, reaction. Um, indeed, there are, I'm, I just recently read Becker's book, so I'm referring to it a lot. There are astonishing letters in Becker's book that I'd never seen before of Bohr, uh, of, of Wheeler trying to sort of, you know, assure Bohr that uh, that Everett wasn't really criticizing him that, you know, could have been lifted out of a Soviet show trial. Or I, I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. Yeah, I mean, there are two things that struck me, because I read Adam's book and many other things for writing my own book. And so Everett was a graduate student of John Wheeler, and Wheeler himself had worked with, it wasn't the student of, but had been advised and mentored by Niels Bohr, who was the granddaddy of the Copenhagen interpretation. Right. And one, you know, like you say, is that uh, it, the, the reaction was both from Wheeler, who was afraid, I don't know, I don't know if afraid is the right word, but certainly reluctant right. in a very explicit way of crossing Bohr and everyone else in the Copenhagen. But also the many letters that came back and forth uh, from Bohr's acolytes in right. Copenhagen, right. some of them directly to Everett, right. and just being so dismissive and so misunderstanding, and, and you, you feel bad for yeah. Everett. But the other one is that you know, Everett, as someone who made this contribution as a graduate student and then left the field and did other things, there's his times in physics when someone does something great because they were in the right place at the right time, not necessarily because they were the smartest person around. Right. But you read, you know, what Everett's writing, and he was the smartest person yeah, around. That's he, true. He understood all of the he implications was, of true. what he was saying. I think that's right. And, you know, he left academia because he wanted to leave academia, right, as, right. as far as I can tell. I think, I think that's right. And the flip side of this, there is this horror of the way Bohr ruled um, things. The flip side, I, I must say, you know, he's one of the people, if I could pick to meet a historical figure, because he must have been the most, somehow the most charismatic human being in the history of the world. And there was just this <laughs> long string of brilliant people who would spend an hour with Bohr, their entire lives would be changed. And one of the ways in which their lives were changed is that they were spouting gibberish, you know, that was completely beneath them about the foundations of quantum mechanics for the rest of their lives. And you want to know, how did this guy do this? You and know? They, they revered him. I mean, yeah. the quote from Wheeler yeah. saying, like, the thing that made me convinced that there were people That's like right. Jesus and Moses exactly. and Buddha I mean, it's was just, meeting Niels Bohr. It just, you know, boy, do I want to meet this guy. <laughs> because I, it doesn't come across in his writing. It, it doesn't come across in his writing at all. At all. You know, there is... Um, What's usually advertised as the uh, as the uh, uh, most detailed and elaborate and sustained statement of Bohr's view is his response to the EPR paper, and 
anybody who's tried to read this, it's just really hard to see what's going on. And I don't know if you've heard this story, but a couple of years ago, Shelley Goldstein happened to discover, I can see by your face that you don't know this story. This is an amazing story. That the standard um, version of Bohr's response to the EPR, the one that was almost exclusively the template for every reprinting it, reprinting of it over a period of about 50 years, had two of the pages reversed. <laughs> I did not <laughs> and know And nobody ever noticed this, okay? So you have, you know, anybody my age, your age probably a little less, has had a long history of the minute you bring up a worry about the foundations of quantum mechanics, people say, I, why do I have to waste my time on this? Bohr settled all this figured it out. a long time yeah. ago. And you say to them, great, could you tell me what he says? And they say, no, go read the paper. Okay. <laughs> and, it, it, and it's obvious that none of the people who were saying this ever read the paper. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's just mind boggling. Okay. Um, it, yeah, and, and there's a whole bunch of other anecdotes. We encourage people to read Adam Becker's book. We'll have Adam on the podcast right. at some point. It's a it's a fascinating history of the foundations of quantum mechanics, mm -hmm. which is an understudied field. Mm -hmm. um, so let's do Everett first, mm -hmm. because it's my favorite. Mm -hmm. So what was Everett's solution to the measurement so, problem? So um, um, the way that quantum mechanics mathematically depicts these states of an electron, for example, in which there fails to be any fact of the matter about whether it's located at A or located at B, is by means of an addition of two vectors. Um, the superposition of being at A and B is represented by the state vector associated with being at point A plus the state vector associated with being at point B. And the, the kind of state that the equations of motion predict that you're going to be in at the end of one of these measurement processes um, looks like uh, a state in which the electron is A and the measuring device registers it to be A and the sentient observer sees it to be A plus the state where it's at B and the measuring device registers it to be at B and the observer sees it at B. And this is a nice way to put it because it really drives home the difference with classical mechanics, right? In classical mechanics, an electron can be at A or right. be at B. There's no such thing Correct. as being at A plus B. Correct. That's just not a thing. That's but in quantum mechanics, thing. you can take any two states and add them. Absolutely right. right. <laughs> and be in the superposition and, and, and be in some distinct physical state right. that has its own distinctive physical properties. Um, um, so Everett's idea was to interpret the kind of state that I was just describing. Um, speaking crudely here, and he was more careful than this, but we want to be a little fast here, um, um, as one in which there were two observers or two experiences of the world being depicted, okay? In one of which there is a particle at A, and there is a measuring device that registers it to be at A, and there's an observer who sees it at A, and in the other of which there is a particle at B and a measuring device that registers it to be at B, and uh, 
and an observer who sees it to be at B or who knows it to be at B. And that in some sense there are really two things there. There are, as it were, two internally coherent stories or worlds uh, going on there. Um, and um, uh, it follows immediately that, of course, we wouldn't be aware of this kind of splitting because our mental state is either seeing it at A and not at B or seeing it at B and, and not at A. So Everett's idea was maybe there is a way to take exactly what the standard quantum mechanical formalism had always said literally. Maybe the arguments that we were referring to before to the effect that we know this not to be what happens at the conclusion of the measurement process is wrong. Um, it's Everett often compared it in what I always thought was a very nice metaphor with, uh, uh, with consequences of Newtonian mechanics, okay? Um, and Newtonian mechanics has what seems at first like the very counterintuitive prediction that the Earth is in motion, um, that it's moving very quickly. Um, and, you know, one, is ten one, one would tend to object at first, that's impossible, we would fall off, so on and so we forth. We would feel it. Right. And, and Newton, uh, or I don't know what the history is, but, but New Newtonian mechanics has the resources to respond to that by saying, no, you haven't worked out the problem to the end. It turns out that the very same laws that predict that the Earth is in motion predict also that if that were true, you would think it wasn't. Okay, right. If that were true, you wouldn't feel it. And something very much like that is being done with the linearity of the quantum mechanical equations in motion in the case of Everett. This same linearity that leads to this um, um, very puzzling and apparently false prediction of superposition, okay, also predicts that if that were what was going on, you wouldn't know it. Right. Uh, you would think otherwise. You would, um, as a matter of physics, as a, as a matter of your physical behavior, you would testify to the contrary if you were interviewed about it. So there is a sort of very exciting very pure, very radical. You know, an early um, uh, uh, fan of Everett was Sidney Coleman uh, mm -hmm. at Harvard, who used to go around giving a lecture that I thought was very aptly named about Everett. It was called Quantum Mechanics in Your Face. And uh, the idea was, no, no, no. It doesn't need to be prettied up or uglied up or, or something like that. It doesn't need to be dressed up or modified. Um, Take the thing completely at face value, but calm down and interpret it carefully and precisely, and you'll see that what it's depicting, you'll see of locating, you'll see a way of locating in it exactly your empirical experience of the world. Okay, let me, um, let's put aside, one can talk about the many worlds interpretation for mm -hmm. hours, uh, but I want to skip over the boring parts. There are what I consider to be hilariously unconvincing objections to the Everett interpretation. Like, I just don't like all those worlds kinds right, of things. Right, right, And there's right. also what if I If you have objections like that, physics isn't the, the field for you. <laughs> there's a lot of things <laughs> right. that are going to be flying in your face right. or your intuitions. Right, 
There are also what I take to be um, convincing arguments for Everett. There's a sales pitch that I like to give. Let's take both of those, you know, into um, uh, as if they were on the table Mm -hmm. and move on. Because I think that your attitude is you wouldn't object to Everett in the same way you object to Copenhagen just because it's vague and ill-defined. Right. You just don't think it quite works. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, basically, look, um, um, and uh, preparatory to this, I don't want to, even though it might enhance the excitement of the podcast, I don't want to be more dogmatic here than I actually oh, feel. No. no, that's right. You're not um, playing a role. Let's tell right, the truth. Right. So, so um, you know, what's the, so that having been said, let me say what I take the situation to be. Um, there's a very obvious puzzle about Everett. Which goes like, which can be brought up very easily. Although when you try to precisify it, it gets complicated in all kinds of interesting ways. But crudely speaking, you say, "Look, quantum mechanics, as it's usually formulated, is a chancy theory. It's a probabilistic theory. Moreover, that's not merely a sort of curious." feature of it, um, um, a peripheral feature or an unimportant feature, it's absolutely at its core. The reasons we think we have, the empirical reasons we think we have for believing that quantum mechanics is true have to do with experiments that we repeat many times and, and obtain results in terms of large frequencies that we think bear out those probabilistic predictions. Those probabilistic predictions, that chanciness is absolutely at the heart of, of what we take to be our compelling reasons for believing that the theory is true in the first place. And, um, and the obvious question that comes up right away is that, look, if, if Everett is telling us he's got a way of understanding the deterministic equations of motion to be true under all circumstances, th- there's just a, a very prima facie tension between the claim that the laws of the evolution of the world are completely deterministic and the appearance of, of these pervasive chancinesses or probabilities in our experience. Um, um, that on the most primitive level as a sort of, you know, um, uh, first pass is what's puzzling, is, is one of the things that's puzzling, not in terms, like you say, of being of being unexpected or surprising or counterintuitive, but on the level of coherence, yeah. okay? If this theory is supposed to explain our experience, how does it explain our experience of these chances? I mean, at the very least, both um, people pro and anti-Everett agree that the usual way of talking in quantum mechanics, that there is a probability of 30% I will see the spin up, Right can't be exactly right. right. I mean, it might be, maybe you talk as if that's true, right. maybe it's, it gets you through the day, but Good. what actually happens is that with 100% probability, you evolve into multiple people. Correct, correct. So there were, there, there's a long history of trying a various, I think, very imaginative ways um, and ways from which we've learned a lot 
about the question of what probability talk means more generally of trying to come to terms with this. There, there was an attitude which is now more or less forgotten, but I think was very clever. This was certainly, for example, Sidney Coleman's attitude and other people's attitude, that they pointed out that um, something that was a feature of these deterministic equations of motion is that if you did an experiment, say, measuring the z-spin of, of an electron that started out with a definite spin in the x-direction, and our experience of those measurements is that half the time they come out z-spin up, half the time they come out z-spin down, you, you just look at the equations of motion, um, how they describe a situation in which you repeated an experiment like that many, many times. And it turns out you can prove a theorem very easily that as the number of times, call it n, that you've repeated that experiment goes to infinity, the world approaches a funny state in which even though there is no fact of the matter about how any individual one of those experiments came out, there is a factor of the matter and this seems like almost like a contradiction, there is a perfectly definite fact of the matter about the proportion of them that came out up and the proportion of them that came out down. And in the limit as n goes to infinity, that proportion approaches exactly one half. And, um, and lots of people were seduced and excited by, uh, by this result. Um, did Everett himself have an argument along those lines? I think he did. I think, he, you know, it's a little, like I say. It wasn't included in the That's right. I haven't, I, you know, something I need to do and have never done is read all the original right. Everett stuff, which is now available, yeah. although only pretty recently. In the published part of his work, um, that argument isn't yeah. really clear. But I agree with you about, in your assessment of Everett's brilliance. And I would suspect he was, he was aware of that argument. And he was just obliged to hide it from Borg because it was too good. <laughs> you know. and, but we have other arguments now. People are still trying. Right. So anyway, that, for various reasons, didn't work out. I mean, I guess one, one of the things to say about it is that before you actually do get to the limit, the theory is adamant that there are no facts about anything. Okay, And we don't, in fact do infinite numbers of experiments and so on. So there were those things since then. Um, I, I think it's probably fair to say that in like the late 70s through the early 90s, there was less excitement than there is now uh, about this interpretation. And I, I think a lot of it was due to this uh, difficulty of seeing how you could make sense of probability talk. Since then, there's been a, a very interesting and very lively revival um, of attempts to make sense out of that probability talk. And um, uh, there are two big traditions that have come up. One tradition, um, which is associated with names like David Deutsch and David Wallace and lots of people around Oxford, something that's funny and noticeable about foundations of quantum mechanics is that uh, even though all of us grew up with telephones and, uh, and so on and so forth, um, attitudes about the foundations are incredibly geographically uh, well-defined. Yes. Right. Um, and, and Oxford was for many years the sort of isolated epicenter of sympathy uh, to, to the Everettian view. Um, 
If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Anyway, uh, uh, there is a, a view that goes like this. You start out by saying, okay, you're right. That is, you say to the critics, you're right. There are no probabilities here. I take it back. You won't hear me use the word probability anymore, okay? They say, take it seriously that um, the only correct thing to say about what's going to happen to you when you make this measurement is that you're going to split, okay? You're going to split in this particular way. Um, pose the following question. Suppose that you knew that that's what was going to happen to you. How would it be rational for you to behave? Okay, what kinds of bets would it would be rational for you to accept or decline, so on and so forth? And these guys claim to have an argument, and I think it's an argument that doesn't work. Uh, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about it a little bit. Um, but they claim to have an argument that it just so happens that in a world like that, um, a ra the kinds of bets that a rational agent would accept or decline would just happen to be exactly the same ones that she would accept or decline in a completely different universe, which was chancy, okay? Which, which had something like the von Neumann picture. Um, and so the idea was, you're right, there are no chances, but the roles that chances actually play in our lives, both in our practical lives and in our cognitive lives, are, are more or less exhausted by these claims about which bets we would make. And what we've got here is a different universe than the one we thought we were in, a fully deterministic universe where we know what's going to happen, but where it just so happens we can show that if you, were, if you took yourself to be in a universe like this, the kinds of bets you would make, the kinds of decisions you would make about how to behave would be exactly as if you were in a different chancy universe. And it's that match that's all that we mean when we say the universe is chancy in a way that it appears to us to be. I mean, if it's possible, I would love to hear the germ of your objection to this. So here's the germ of my objection. I'll try to say it. We'll, we'll achieve some compromise between saying yeah. it clearly <laughs> and saying it concisely. Um, um, and maybe I'll try to say it concisely first and, and you can sure. um, uh, make, it, make me say it more clearly. Um, concisely... It's this. 
these strategies all depend, the, these arguments depend on, so the, the kinds of things these arguments purport to show is that, you know, if you have, uh, uh, if you want to do any kind of decision series, so there's a whole branch of logic and mathematics and philosophy called decision theory, um, where people try to sort of axiomatize and lay down clearly what it means to make a rational decision. And in order to know what decision you need to make, there are certain, you need to decide in advance something you wish to maximize. You may wish to maximize longevity or happiness or profit or something like that. But given a decision about what you wish to maximize and given some picture you have about how the world works, what kinds of application, uh, what kinds of actions have what kinds of probabilities of leading to what kinds of results, there's an algorithm that people try to develop in decision theory that you can feed all this into and decide what you what you want to do. And the axioms seem fairly unobjectionable. They, like if you prefer A to B and B to C, you prefer right, A to C. Right, right, so on and so forth. Yeah. There's, a, there's a nice old joke, which it's worth bringing up, of Sidney Morgan Bessers, uh, who used to be in the philosophy department at Columbia. Um, Sidney said, what is it that you maximize in Jewish decision theory? Answer, regret. <laughs> <laughs> Still, though, fits the axioms. <laughs> um, um, good. Anyway, um, uh, the thought of these decision-theoretic arguments for Everett is as follows. We take your preferences for cases where the world is not going to branch. You prefer the outcome to be more money rather than less money uh, for you or, or something like that. And um, the structure of all the arguments is Given your preferences for non-branching futures, given your preferences among non-branching futures, we can derive on pain of irrationality what preferences you must have among branching futures, okay? So given the amount of money that you're willing to pay to make some non-branching future come true, we're going to be able to deduce on pain of irrationality how much money you'd be willing to pay in order to have a certain branching future come true. And what they claim to be able to show is that the amount of money you would pay to have this branching future come true is exactly the amount you would pay to have one branch come true with a certain probability and have the other branch come true with a certain probability. Good. In a a very concise statement of the objection. And this sounds very simple, and it, it, it's amazing how long it took for people to see it because the arguments were couched in a way that made it hard to see. Look, it's just nuts to think that your preferences among non-branching futures could in any way constrain, on pain of straightforward irrationality, your, your preferences among branching futures. The branching futures are a whole new set of flavors available to you that become available only once you start considering. So for example, you may be somebody who under normal circumstances, I don't know what, prefers chocolate ice cream to vanilla ice cream. Um, but if you're suddenly offered a new option 
Uh, there can be two of you. One of them has chocolate ice cream. One of them has vanilla ice cream. You might, be a t- you might have a taste for variety or something like that, which is simply not going to show up in any of your non-branching preferences. Okay? Um, so there is, and I think when you put it this way, the whole strategy becomes obviously nuts, okay? They're, they're, you're, you're not going to have on pain of irrationality. You may think these tastes are weird and so on. That's not what decision theory is about. Like right. we were saying, you can choose to maximize anything you want. Profit, longevity, regret, you know, whatever you like, okay? The decision theory is just supposed to tell you what you're supposed to do. These guys are arguing that once we know your non-branching preferences, unless you're completely irrational, we, all, we also know your branching preferences. Linearity that, of... <laughs> that, that just couldn't be right, okay? That couldn't possibly be right because once the branching preferences are put on the table, oh, you can choose among these two, you got a whole bunch of different stuff to choose between. The thought was that your preferences among branching cases must somehow leave a trace or show up among your non-branching preferences in a way that's sufficiently strong to fully constrain your preferences among the branching cases. I think this is just wrong, okay? Um, Let me see if I can give a more concrete example. So, um, uh, 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 here's a standard example which uh, people in the decision theoretic tradition use. Um, uh, imagine the following kind of superposition. You have $100, and the rest of the world is in state A, okay? And you have uh, $1, and the rest of the world is in state B, okay? Imagine the, a superposition of those two. You have $100, and the rest of the world is in state A, plus you have $1, and the rest of the world is in state B. Good. Moreover, let it be stipulated that among the non-branching options, that is, you have $100 or you have $1, you don't care about the rest of the world. You only care about how much money you have. So you have no preferences among you have $100 and the world is in state A, and you have $100 and the world is in state B, and you have no preferences among you have $1 and the world is in state A, and $1 and the world is in state B, but you prefer $100 with A or B, any state with $100, whether the world, rest of the world is in state A or state B, to any state with $1, and the rest of the world is in state A or state B. Good. Then they say, suppose that's true. Now consider the following two superpositions. $100 and state A plus $1 and state B, and... $100 in state B plus $1 in state A. They say you couldn't have a preference for one of those over the other because you've already made it clear that you don't care about the difference between A and B. That's what shows up in your, in your non-branching preferences. Yeah. Okay? Um, it kind of makes sense to me. I got to admit. Good. Good. So, <laughs> let's, so let's go. Let me actually, to make this even more clear, let me back up a tiny bit. Uh, well, I'll go through it here, and then maybe we'll back up when we need to. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Uh, suppose I say, you know, p part of the state of the rest of the world is in state A, I'm fat, and in state B, I'm thin, okay? Um, I don't care about how fat I am. That is, what I mean by I don't care how fat I am is I have no preferences between $100 in fat and $100 in thin, and I prefer $100 fat or thin to $1 fat or thin. So I have no preferences about my weight. But I say, now I'm confronted with the branching preferences. And I say, you know, I think I'd kind of like to be rich in the branch where I'm fat, because I think more of me is going to be there, okay, or something. Now, we don't have to have a discussion about how reasonable this no, is. No, you're just saying it's a logical possibility. It, it's a logical possibility. I don't care whether I'm fat or thin, but That's right. if That's right. conditionalized on being exactly. fat, I want more money. Exactly, yeah. okay. Or vice versa, I guess. Um, um, it was always, uh, uh, and you're familiar with this example. You use this example in some papers of yours for slightly different reasons. But everybody thought, and it seemed very innocent to say, of course it's not going to matter if you permute the fat and thin. You've already told us you don't care about that. They weren't careful to attend to the fact that what they meant by saying, you've already told us you don't care about that, is that it doesn't show up in your non-branching preferences. Nothing about, you know, you're having those non-branching preferences is completely consistent with your having all kinds of different preferences among different kinds of branching that might occur, okay? So I just think, and, and the minute you start to think about it that way, it seems to me you immediately say to yourself, my God, what could we have been thinking? Of course, the branching preferences are just a whole new set of options that you have. Once those are put on the table, what makes you imagine that you could have deduced as a matter, you know, on pain of pure inconsistency, your preferences among the branching options just from your much more limited set of preferences among the highly special non-branching options? So that's in a nutshell why I think those arguments don't work. Do they have an obvious response to this yet, or is this the ongoing dialogue? There is, a, th I, I think it's fair to say there's an ongoing dialogue, and I don't want to put words in people's mouths. There are various other principles that are sometimes cited in decision theories, um, things that go under names like dichronic coherence and so on and so forth, which are sometimes people try to bring to bear in these situations, I think they're beside the point. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that anybody's given up and rolled over, although I do think, for example, David Wallace's claims about what this kind of argument establishes are now a little bit more modest than, than mm -hmm. they used to be, that they're clearly showing the consistency of such a thing, right. but not necessarily the rational necessity. Um, of such a thing. But I don't want to put words yeah, in, okay. in David's mouth. That's my impression. It has gone back and forth. There are attempts to justify some of these principles. For myself, and it took me a while, you know, in, in, my, in the evolution of my own thinking about this, I had thought of this, I had thought of this so-called fatness example early on it took me a while to see the general point, okay? Right. The general point I now see is 
these branching options, uh, these non-branching options are just a tiny fraction of the actual options you have once branching is put on the table. Where, where did you get the idea that you could infer everything about your preferences among the branching cases from your preferences among the non-branching yeah, cases? Yeah, because I think I read stuff by you about the fatness example, right. but I, I found it wholly unconvincing. But right. this, this point makes perfect sense to me, Good. that there can just be correlations between preferences right. that couldn't have existed that's in the right. non-branching That's universe. right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Um, so, so I think that's a much cleaner way to make the point. And as you just said, this wasn't the way I presented it in earlier writings. I had very specific examples. Now, you know, it took a while to understand that these are examples of a very general, very simple point. Um, and, and, and I don't know if that point has been made in writing in such a way that it's really gotten the attention okay. of advocates of this point of view. And maybe we'll just have to wait a little to see, to see how it strikes them. Speaking of waiting a little, we're clearly not going to do justice to GRW and Bohm. That's sure. okay. Right. Some other day we will. Mm -hmm. um, we might as well do justice to Everett. So sure. you said there's another way to get the probabilities sure. that you also don't agree with. Sure. That there's a, there's a way. So, and here's where I want to be a little less dogmatic. Um, um, I think there's a pretty cut and dried argument, as I've just been describing, against the decision theoretic uh, point of view. Um, there is a point of view that's associated with, among other people, you, uh, about this, that I've been thinking about for much less long because it's been proposed more recently. And uh, I'm, I'm at, at least at this stage more puzzled about. Um, but, I, I, but it's fair to say that I have worries about it that look to me to be serious. Um, um, so... So, if you want me to describe the I do. view, so I will chime in. <laughs> um, so it's something like this: um, the original, the, one of the original ways we had of putting the worry was, look, where does, or may, maybe I didn't put it this way, but here's a way of putting it at this stage of the discussion that'll be useful, um, um, where about to do a measurement of the z-spin of an electron whose x-spin is definite, or we're about to do a measurement of the position, maybe that's easier to understand, of a particle which is being in a super, which is in, at the moment, the superposition of being located at x and located at y. Um, and we say, look, if ever it is true, I know exactly what's going to happen. There are going to be two of me. One of them is going to see the, the particle at X. One of them is going to see the particle at Y. End of story. Everything is deterministic. And what's puzzling about this is as follows. If you consider any other circumstances in which we've found it sensible to say things like the probability that X is going to occur or the probability that I'm going to see X is 50%, say. Now, we don't have a fully satisfactory consensus on a correct philosophical analysis of chance, but sure as hell, whatever it means, one of the things it implies is that there's something about the future of which I'm not currently certain. 
Okay, um, there may be any number of reasons for my not being certain about this aspect of the future. It may be that the fundamental laws of motion are inherently chancy, um, and for that reason, I can't be certain about the future, no matter how much uh, information I may have about the present. Or it may be that the laws are perfectly deterministic, but there's some information about the present that I'm missing um, because it's very difficult to obtain, because it's very microscopically detailed or something like that. And it may be some combination of those two factors. The worry in the Everett case is there seems to be nothing relevant to what I'm interested in here about the future when I'm preparing to do this measurement of the position of the particle. There seems to be nothing relevant about the future of which I'm currently ignorant. I know exactly what's going to happen. There are going to be these two guys. One will see the particle at X. One will see the particle at Y. End of story. So you say... Where does anything like chance have an opportunity to get a foothold? Chance requires uncertainty, okay? Remember, and it's helpful here to contrast this with the decision-theoretic strategy. The decision-theoretic strategy took the following route. We agree, there's no room for chance here. There's no chance here. Um, all that's going on is that the decisions that a rational person is going to make would be the same ones they would make under these other circumstances where there is chance. So call it pseudo-chance or something like that. Good. Here's another approach. Somebody says, let's look at this process in a little more detail. Imagine that there is an interval between the measurement actually being carried out and my looking at the measuring device. Um, um, but I know that the measurement has already been carried out before I look at the measuring device. At that point, it seems fair to say, I know that I'm now already either in the electron was at point A world or I'm in the electron that was in point B world, but I don't know which. So here, it seems as if we have the sort of thing we wanted. Um, we have some genuine uncertainty. Once we've got uncertainty about the future, that is, I don't know which one I'm going to see when I look, it feels like chance has a chance to get a foothold um, in, a, in a not incoherent way. Um, 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 there are all kinds of questions which we could discuss in more detail. Okay, but who says we always have this interval, and, and, and in some sense, isn't this interval coming too late and, and too late in the game? Put, put those all aside, because right. I think you guys have interesting things to say um, about all of those. Um, um, Us guys being in, the paper I wrote was with uh, Chip Siebens, who's right. now my collaborator, my, my uh, colleague at Caltech. Right, right. In the philosophy department. Right. Um, and... Uh, uh, that sounds more promising. This is going to be a way to get real old-fashioned chance back in the game in contrast to the decision-theoretic strategy. There is something you don't know which, right. which branch of the wave function right. you're on. Right, good. Um, um, here's what is hard for me to understand about this. This comes out of a tradition of thinking about probabilities epistemically, okay? Uh, of thinking that what probabilities represent are cases of us being ignorant about something. Um, um, 
let me think about what's the right order in which to say stuff here. The, the, let me say it in this order. So, so there are a couple of things there are a couple of things that I find puzzling piled on top of each other here. The piling makes them that much more puzzling as a collective. Um, the first thing is, there is this long tradition of thinking, this tradition that goes back to Laplace. If I know, if what I know and all I know is that either there's a marble in box A or there's a marble in box B, and I know nothing more, that is my epistemic situation with regard to the question, is the marble in box A or box B, is I have no clue, um, then there is some kind of a priori principle of rationality to the effect that the probability you ought to assign to the marble being in box A is 50%, and the probability you ought to assign to its being in box B is 50%. This is referred to as a principle of indifference, and the aspect of it I want to focus on is not exactly how you do the calculation, because you guys are going to have different ways of doing it. You're going to have your ESP yep. principle. You're going to have different ways of doing it there. The important feature of it is that it's a priori. Yeah. Okay. That it's a that that it enters. It's not empirical. In, that's right. It's not empirical. It enters in as a principle of rationality, and um, there's something very confusing to me about a strategy like that. There is that is when people are asked to offer arguments for a strategy like this. There's a fairly straightforward argument. Well, look. There's a certain symmetry in my epistemic situation. My epistemic situation doesn't distinguish in any way, shape, or form between box A and box B. So when I come to the business of assigning probabilities, in order to be faithful, in order for these probabilities to be faithful representations of my epistemic situation, they must respect these symmetries that are inherent in my epistemic situation. And there's only one assignment of probabilities that respects those symmetries in a case like this. It's the 50-50, okay? And it seems to me that one's reaction to this ought to be, and then, mind you, I mean, you go back in the history, people use this kind of reasoning to show why the probabilities in classical statistical mechanics are what they are. This turns into an explanation of the fact that heat only flows from hotter bodies to cooler bodies and all kinds of stuff like that, okay? All kinds of claims of what's going to happen out there in the world, okay? I mean, it does work. No, it, yeah, it succeeds, right, right, it succeeds. But, but if this is the reason why these, if this is offered as the explanation of why heat is flowing from hotter bodies to cooler bodies, it seems to me that you have to say, hold on a second, I must have dozed off there at some point, because <laughs> something happened that seems kind of funny. Um, I went from, I have no clue, to, of course, I should expect that heat is going to flow from hotter bodies to cooler bodies. Um, I know how to assign precise numerical probability values to various different possibilities. Um, I, you should say, so anybody who hears this should say, did I win the lottery or something? I mean, I mean, how did I get all of this for free? Okay, how am I so lucky? And why is it that this constitutes 
an element of an explanation of physical stuff out there in the world that doesn't give a shit what I know or don't know, acting in some particular way, okay? So, so you know, I, that always struck me as profoundly mysterious. Um, and of course, if you examine the argument a little further that I just offered, it's a bad argument. That's not the only thing I can do that respects the symmetries of my epistemic situation. The other thing I can do which respects those symmetries and which seems like a much more honest account and direct account of what my epistemic situation in fact is, is to say when I'm asked to assign probabilities to these two possibilities, is to say which part of I have no clue do you not understand? I have no clue means I have no clue. Of course, I'm not going to assign probabilities to these two possibilities. My epistemic situation is I have no clue, period, end of story. If you're now, forced to assign a probability distribution, if somebody, you would get that one. You mean one, they force me? No, no, but I'm, I'm admitting. They hold a gun to my head? Yeah. I mean, if, if somebody held a gun to my head. But you're saying there's another option. No, it's not. If somebody held a gun to my head, it seems to me the right thing to say to them would be, you're being extremely unfair. Okay, this really isn't. This really isn't head. nice. What you're doing, because right. there is no rational thing for me to say. Okay, now, as you said, and this is a really interesting difference between this kind of uh, this kind of way of justifying probabilities in something like classical statistical mechanics and this way of justifying probabilities in something like Everett, um, or in general, what people call self-locating probabilities. In the case of classical statistical mechanics, the things I'm attaching probabilities to are different physical configurations of the world, okay? As you correctly said just now, those numerical assignments of probability turn out to be empirically correct, okay? Um, so all that requires alteration in our attitude towards statistical mechanics, if you were to buy my argument, okay, is if you were to buy my, you know, I have no clue argument, is just that, oh, right, um, these probabilities weren't a priori. The, the world isn't doing that because I didn't, because I had no clue. Um, these, these probabilities turn out to be empirically correct, as you said. And if somebody says, what kind of status do you think they have? It seems to me the correct answer is they have the status of statistical, um, um, empirical laws of how the world is arranged, okay? And we believe them precisely because of their empirical success. This is, is this a reflection of your Humean uh, upbringing? I guess, I guess, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, it is, it is. Um, um, good. When we get to, so in, so the summary of the discussion of classical statistical mechanics is, you made a mistake here, but the mistake didn't in any way cripple your scientific enterprise. It's just there is this probability distribution. You were right about what its numerical values were. It's just that you thought you could derive it a priori, and that turns out not to be true. Your reasons for believing it are empirical. Um, and if somebody says, but gee, it seems so reasonable to me, um, um, the, the person who has my sort of position will have a ready explanation there. Look, these are true statistical laws, and they're very general right. ones. 
there's every reason to expect them to have been very deeply hardwired into us since we were fish, okay, um, by natural selection, okay? That doesn't in any way uh, uh, put in doubt the claim that they're ultimately empirical generalizations, um, although they may seem to us extremely intuitive and exactly what we would expect and so on. Um, okay. You don't think that that uh, explanation is available for Everettian? So here's the difference. In the Everettian case, and let's not talk right away about Everett. Let's just talk about the more general notion of self-locating probabilities. So here's an old example due to David Lewis. Um, um, imagine that there are two brains in the world at a certain moment in its history. Imagine that at that moment, these two brains are in exactly the same state, okay? Um, and moreover... Except so, they're located in two different they're places. They're located in two different places, right? They're in exactly the same state that is vis-a-vis -vis their associated mental state, right? Um, uh, they may even have two different bodies or something like that, but meant, their current mental state is exactly the same. Um, um, suppose, moreover, that it's part of this mental state that they share that they know there are these two things. Uh, in the world. Um, then Lewis says, each of them could rightly wonder, I wonder if I'm the one on the right or on the left, okay? Um, even though there's nothing about the physical state of the world that they don't know, okay? Um, and so there could be another kind of uncertainty, unlike the one we were discussing before in the context of statistical mechanics. It's not an uncertainty. It's not anything that you lack knowledge of about the objective physical state of the world. Okay, It's, it's something that is compatible. It's a kind of uncertainty that's compatible with complete knowledge of the physical state of the world, just like you have in Everett in the... In the context we've been discussing, um, but still there's something you don't know about where you are in there. Okay. Um, and suppose that we were to start a, a, a indifference type of argument here. There are, there come up with a priori principles about what kinds of probabilities we should assign. Here the case is crucially different than in the earlier statistical mechanical case. In the earlier statistical mechanical case, the lucky thing was, you philosophers, you can have all the arguments you like. It doesn't matter, okay? Because we have empirical access to what the correct probabilities are. But if two people are having a debate, okay, one, they're, they're about to split, okay? One of them says, I believe I'm gonna end up on the right. The other says, I believe I'm going to end up on the left. A third says, or rather, there, somebody, some single person is entertaining three theories, according to one of which they got a 90% chance of ending up on the right, according to the second of which they got a 90% chance of ending up on the left, and according to the third of which they've got 50-50 chances. In this case, since the probabilities do not attach to claims about the physical configuration of the world, there isn't going to be an empirical access to them. Okay, We're thinking of these choices as actually 
arising from a quantum measurement branching the wave yeah, function. Yeah, So suppose we again ha- with one hundred percent probability, both right. really do come true Correct. somewhere in the wave. Correct. Function. Both really do come true, but now we're assigning different probabilities to our finding ourselves right. in one branch or the other. Here, as opposed to the classical statistical mechanical case, what we're assigning probabilities to doesn't have the form of a con- of a physical configuration of the world. All the different theories completely agree about the physical configuration of the world. They're just disagreeing about where I'm going to find myself in there. Because they're not disagreeing about the physical configuration of the world, it's obvious that you couldn't set up an experiment, for example, that has the following property. If theory one is true, the number one ends up being written on a piece of paper at the end. And if theory two is true, the number two ends up being written on a piece of paper. Because what ends up getting written on a piece of paper is part of the physical configuration of the world. That's going to be the same under any of these circumstances. Okay, Um, So all we're going to have to go on here is the a priori argument. Okay, And if somebody finds the a priori argument unpersuasive, then we really are that, that really is going to cripple our ability to do physics here in a way that it didn't in the classical statistical mechanical case, because there's not this other non-a priori empirical access to what the right probabilities are. You can say, suppose we run such an experiment repeatedly. Guy splits once, yeah. then he split, each one splits again, each one splits again. Okay? Good. There'll be one guy who got all... Uh, uh, all, all the particles on the left. There'll be another guy who got all the particles on the right. There'll be a much larger collection of people who found some of the particles on the left and some of the particles on the right. Good. Um, look at the guy who got them all on the left. He says uh, uh, the, the theory that it's 90% to the left was very well confirmed by what I saw. All the other people, suppose he can talk to them, unlike in Everett, they all start screaming at him. What are you talking about? We confirmed completely different things. Of course, the guy who found them all on the left will say, I I knew as a matter of physical determinism that you guys were all going to be there saying this, okay? I'm asking about confirmation or disconfirmation about where I was going to end up, okay? That's confirmed on the left. The guy on the right will say the same thing about the other theory, and all the guys in the middle will say the same thing about the 50-50 theory. Okay? There's not going to be a definitive way to settle this. We might, and I think from a conversation you and I had yesterday, that, that this might be um, the, the reaction you would have in mind. You say, yes, I agree with all that. Um, the kinds of probabilities, um, how shall I put it, the sense in which one of these probabilistic theories is confirmed or disconfirmed by such experiments is a purely indexical sense, an irreducibly indexical sense. That is, it is not possible, it doesn't make any sense to ask, did this sequence of experiments confirm or disconfirm the theory. Um, Universally. That's right. You say that it confirmed it or disconfirmed it for I, 
you know. I think or, the, I think the Neverending has to say that because there will be always some real branch of the wave function where everything went screwy for all of history. No, 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 that's true. But I, but if, for example, if the decision theoretic argument had worked, which I don't think it does, they wouldn't have had to have resource to this new and metaphysically puzzling kind of purely indexical fact. Okay. They no, would've... but I think that there will always be people who draw the wrong conclusions in an Everettian multiverse. Sure. Um, um, that's right. That's okay if they are, if, if they're, you see, we're going to get into a circularity here, I think. Um, it's fine if there are people who draw the wrong conclusions, as long as it's the case that there's one reason or another not to take them seriously, okay? Now, you might want to say, we don't have to take them seriously because they're, Im- they're uh, implausible. Yeah, they're no, unlikely. trying to avoid that. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's clearly but cheating. Then, then we're going to get into cheating. it. Right. And, and um, other than that, I mean, I, if you take on board these purely indexical facts, I mean, I don't... It's at this point that... Uh, that it gets hard for me to see my way clearly through. So we're talking about some new realm of facts, purely indexical facts. And I guess I'm going to want to know a lot about Just in about case them. it's not obvious for the audience, indexical meaning where you are in the universe or, or, in, or in, some in, fact of location. Or let, let's put it this way. That this, it, uh, philosophers call statements indexical where the meaning of the statement depends on the circumstances under which it's made, okay? Um, if, I say, if I say, I am wearing a black shirt, that's true. If you say, I am wearing a black shirt, that's false, okay? Yeah. Um, now, um, in most ordinary cases, this doesn't cause a problem because we can translate the statements using indexicals into statements using non-indexicals. We could say, no, no, what's going on here is that David is wearing a black shirt and right. Sean is not, and we can get rid of that, okay? Um, in the cases we're talking about, the statements we're concerned with are irreducibly indexical. We can't take the eyes out of it. We can't take the indexical terms out while still meaning what we want to mean. Okay. This the is, only difference is which branch of the wave function. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, um, so if we really need to take on board into our metaphysics facts like that in order even to formulate our most basic physical theories, um, that's a scary and puzzling situation for me. And let me distinguish scary from puzzling. Um, um, scary, or maybe scary is too strong a word. Um, undesirable just because we have other ways of solving the measurement problem on the table that don't require us to speculate about these new kinds of facts. So other things being equal, which of course you will deny that they are, but other things being equal, that should strongly preference the other ones. The second point is it's just puzzling. I need to, so, so, you know, so somebody with sort of philosophical inclinations is immediately going to say, whoa, whoa, we've got this whole new set of facts here. 
I, there's all kinds of things I want to know about how these things work, how they're logically related to one another, what combinations of such facts deductively imply other such facts, and so on and so forth. I want to know a semantics of this kind of talk. I want to know a logic of this kind of talk. You've got to give me a few days here, and I've you know, got to sit down and, and think all this through. Um, so, so, first statement... So, and I don't know, uh, and, and the, the sense in which I want to be non-dogmatic here is, I don't know how that thinking would come out. Yeah. Maybe there's a consistent way to talk about all that. Maybe there's not. If there's not, then the view is ruled out in a very decisive way. If there is, then it becomes more of a balance um, between various desiderata that we might have. Scary, but exciting and exhilarating right. okay. at the same yeah, time. I, you know, cup half, <laughs> cup half full, cup half empty. You know, in, in my tradition, you maximize regret. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we, we, we've reached our little cutoff here, so I have not maximized regret. This was great. Thanks, David, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was lots of fun. travel you know when it comes to love see you soon can't wait the sky is no limit you know with your delta amex card being oceans apart means meeting in aruba and booking a war travel with your card means saving 15 on delta flights you know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love because you're the long distance lovebirds it's why you're a delta sky miles platinum american express card member if you travel you know Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know.